Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Let It Roll, the podcast about how and why popular music happens, hosted by Nate Wilcox. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. Today, we continue our special eight-episode miniseries on Netflix's hip-hop evolution documentary. Nate is joined by Alexi Ald and Eugene S. Robinson, his cohorts from the YouTube show If the Shoes Fit. This week, they discuss the first episode of Hip Hop Evolution's second season, The Southern Way, which looks at the first Southern rappers to make a national impact, Florida's Two Live Crew and Texas's Ghetto Boys and the Underground Kings. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. Time to let it roll. Tonight, I, I'm blowing this again. My, yeah, I'm glad you got the again in there. We're covering Hip Hop Evolution. My co-hosts are Alexi Old and Eugene S. Robinson. And we're on Season 2, Episode 1, The Southern Way. There's two two parts to The Southern Way. First off, Two Live Crew, which we'll be covering in this segment. And then we'll loop back to cover the part about Houston's Ghetto Boy. So... They're going back in time. In our last episode of the end of season one, they were talking about West Coast gangster rap, which NWA was roughly around the same time as Two Live Crew, but then the Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg stuff got ahead. So we're going back in time a little bit to the late 80s. This is the first time, basically, we're, the second time we're out in New York, first time we're away from the West Coast, focusing on Miami. And, and the thing, I don't know if I learned this from Hip Hop Evolution or somewhere else, but the thing, one thing I thought was cool was I did not know that the Two Live Crew was originally from California and that Luther Campbell was not originally a member and that he uh, was a DJ in Miami, got a hold of a, a record beatbox, and it was such a hit uh, in Miami. It was, it was basically the electro style that Africa Bambata had, had popularized in 82, which was still echoing on in L.A., and just hit big in Miami a few years later. Lucy Campbell jumped all over it, brought the group out to Miami, uh, took over as their manager, label mate, or started a record label, signed him to it, and started selling records, especially once he dirtied them up. He made yeah. them, uh, the lyrics explicit and nasty and added tons of bass, which was 
uh, what was big in Miami. Miami, of course, being close to Jamaica. Hey, uh, what did you say? I said being close to Jamaica. Okay. On, on the Caribbean. Uh, and Cuba. Place, and Cuba had a big. No one cares about that part. They care about the first part. It, yeah, Cuba got cut <laughs> off in 1959. <laughs> 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 yeah. Cuba is a big part of the American musical story until boom, 19. Yeah, yeah. But uh, uh, so they had big boom and sound systems already, and 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 DJs like Luther Campbell are doing what they called ghetto style DJ, and he started with reggae. Moved on into, into heavy bass stuff, brought in the electro, brought in a two live crew, and uh, you know the rest. The rest is history. So, key quotes from the show. Let's throw this at you and get your reactions. They had walls of speakers. You could feel your heart coming out of your chest. It was dirty, grimy, and deep. That's how the Miami sound was defined. Thoughts on the sound and the aesthetic out of Miami, Alexi. Well, I think in terms of hearing speakers that makes your heart come out of your chest. I remember growing up in D.C., going to different Caribbean music festivals, uh, Caribbeana, which is one that my father was involved in. Uh, Vaughn Martin was a local uh, radio DJ personality, not with turntables or anything, but just having the golden voice. And straight up, I just remember as, as a kid, like you'd feel like you were going to have a heart attack or there's something wrong with your heart because the bass is just like going so strongly. And that was like for, you know, uh, Caribbean music, you know. So, um, you know, so being a part of that kind of dynamic, yeah, it's true. I, it's, it's hard to kind of remove yourself from that kind of attack. I mean, that's the thing that's kind of funny. It's not a situation where you're just minding your business, you listen to music and you're calmly like, the music is engaging you whether you want it to or not, you know? Mm -hmm. So um, that's why I always found fascinating about like music with that kind of bass that's involved. How about you, Eugene? When did you first- Yeah, you see, you see, his, you see his face I'm making? You know, that, it's what they used to call in the early days of third bass, the gas face. As it. You know, I, I I tell you, I owned a record store then, right? And so, like, I was getting stuff, and I listened to Two Live Crew because people were saying Two Live Crew, Two Live, you should buy some, so I could sell it in the store. <laughs> two Live Crew, and I'm like, man, this is shitty, shit, shit, shitty. And for the same reason that it took me a long time to get into a group like Trouble Funk, it was fundamentally a live music, right? Mm. So, um, so. But and I could almost trouble funk DC that, the DC group trouble yes, funk correct Go -go. correct and I could almost feel I could almost feel that coming through the speakers listening to it mm -hmm. but it just it was like you you don't uh, and and I held judgment until I said well let me see these guys and and when I <laughs> no when I saw them when I and I didn't see them live I saw them on a on a video it suddenly started to make sense to me that this was a fun, fundamentally a live experience. Mm. They were a live band, yep. and I could I could clearly see the whole call and response that the audience was flipping out. And so I said, I, I, I got it. Because I've seen a lot of bands, at that point, I'd already seen you know a, a lot of hip hop live, and I was like, it's never gonna be as cool as a video. You know, I get that. The video, you got the money, it's controlled. Live shows, just two guys, in like, you know, until the Wu-Tang's just guys walking around, or Public Enemy, guys walking around on stage. But when I saw them on video, but live, I said, oh, I got it. This is like, this is a bacchanal, man. I, it, it made total sense to me. It didn't mean, it didn't mean that the hip hop itself was any good. Right. But that wasn't, the, that wasn't the point of it. That wasn't the point of it. If you couldn't figure out that you needed to see them live, 
then that's your loss. Screw you, you know? But fundamentally, this was not, and unlike LA hip hop, it wasn't even car music. It was very specifically in my mind, club music, yep. right? Not like New York hip hop, which, you know, boom boxes on the subways, later became Walkmans, later became personal, you know, sound devices. Uh, it was a different type of vibe. LA, Oakland, different type of vibe. This was straight up from Miami, outside party music. And uh, cool. Uh, I, I still don't like, I mean, again, if you listen to it in California, New York, it's still missing something, but it intimates that. And if you got it, then yeah, cool. And I also like what they did with language. And that's by being filthy, dirty, McNasty. It was in the great, great tradition of, you know, Blowfly and and uh, Red Fox and just, you know, the whole kind of <laughs> calling it like they see it. And so second quote I'm going to throw at you guys is from Mr. Mix, who's the DJ in the group, who explains how did they go from a trio in California going out to Florida, and next thing you know, their new promoter, manager, label owner is the front man of the group. And so and Mr. Mix's explanation is, is just classic. He says, we started doing some shows. Fresh Kid Ice is bashful and shy. Marquee didn't have a particular focus, which I thought was just a great one. <laughs> a I think he still does it. Yeah. Like, it was nasty. Sound good. I like it. I like it. I like it. Yeah. It's cool. <laughs> it was like it was like chaos. Luke was standing on the sidelines, going, "Man, they bombing." He could just feel his money was going down the drain. <laughs> so, <it's, laughs> so he took his DJ skills, the type of DJ they were doing in Miami back then, just talking over records. He started doing all this stuff between the songs. And then eventually he said, man, if I'm going to be going out there doing this stuff, I got to get paid. So that's how he became the fourth member of the group. And that explains something to me because I remember back in the day noticing that Luke Skywalker wasn't rapping much. I mean, right. that, you know, that he wasn't carrying any verses. And I was kind of like, how is he the main right, guy? Right. He's not the DJ. Well, what is he doing exactly? But that totally made sense because that kind of stuff just, you know, the basic – meat and potatoes, throw your hands in the air type stuff. Here's what we're doing. And you could see in the clips that they showed that, that he was he was contributing, you know. So mm. thoughts on the coup, Eugene? Well, he, as a focal point, a focus and a focal point, it, it was a, it was a wise move. Sometimes you need an impresario to give to give a face and a voice to what. In other words, like the demiurge, mm. he's explaining to you the realm of eternal ideas that are coming out of those guys' mouth when they were incapable of doing it for themselves. And this happened. It's happened before. And it doesn't even need. You know, people say, Ah, Luca's got no talent. Ah, you know, it doesn't need. It doesn't need it's something that magical that happens like I, I Nate and I'm sure you guys know it was shocking to me when I discovered that George Clinton doesn't play an instrument <laughs> that the Beatles couldn't read music and that you know it's like cool you know you think about the hits that between George Clinton and the Beatles that they generated and they don't have the function he would just say I want you to play this and I want you I want it to sound like mm. this and you know, much more skilled musicians were like, "Cool, I got it." So it was again following in a grand grand tradition. And um, if you had seen them, like Nate was saying, if you had seen them before, you know, before he joined or paid attention to them, yeah, it was uh, probably lacking just a little. 
<laughs> I would think. Alexi? Yeah, I think I was also account. confused. And I just want to, in terms of clarify, the thing I was talking about earlier in terms of the base wasn't two live crew. They weren't rocking two live crew in DC at all. It was like just uh, Caribbean music they were with the base. But uh, when I listened to two live crew going back to that, yeah, it sounded like garbage music. <laughs> so I just, you know, so I can I can agree and relate to that. I think in terms of Luke Campbell, yeah, I thought it was interesting. The thing I think is really interesting, the, the thing that hit me throughout the episode, I didn't, I was not aware of Luke Campbell's um, Caribbean background, his heritage. Oh, yeah. And if you if you listen to his journey and his perspective, it's very stereotypically like a Caribbean perspective, right? In the sense that like there's a when they were talking about how he needed to own his own thing and people are like well black people can't own that he's like the fuck are you talking about you know so yeah, it's yeah. it's reference and it's just something something as basic as that and also like these guys are fucking my money i need to go and and, and do something about it there's a certain mm -hmm. kind of, this is not diminishing individuals that do not have the Caribbean background. It's not. It's just that it's like the Washington D.C. No, but it's like it's a Washington D.C. It's like the Washington D.C. dynamic that I used to hear all the time when I moved to New York from D.C. In the sense that there was a certain kind of arrogance and attitude that was attributed to brothers from D.C. because that grew up in a certain time frame because you are accustomed to seeing all different kinds of people who looked like you running shit. And when you're yep. in a coming from a dynamic where you're used to seeing doctors and lawyers and accountants, people doing good things, bad things, when you see multiple strains of economic activity coming from all different kinds of people, specifically yep. people that look like you and your family members, there's a different sense of what you think you can accomplish and what you yep. think you can do as opposed to like – well, if you do that, you're going to get fucking firebombed because your yep. parents got firebombed. Your grandparents got yep. firebombed. Your great-grandparents got firebombed. So I just thought it was really interesting in the sense that like the perspective that he kept on coming to just really reeked to me as opposed to someone of privilege of like, you know, this rich boy of this whole notion of the fact like, well, why can't I do this? You know, yep. what is the barrier? And I could automatically see like a a stereotypical like West Indian parent, you know, saying like, well, what's your problem? Like you were addressing the other day, the other yep. week, Eugene, like, what is your problem? Well, this thing, no, 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 no. That's on you. I don't see that. It's you. What's your, yep. why are, what's yep. your excuse? Yeah. It was funny. Somebody in the comments to one of those shows, I did a show on race and the show on racism said, I don't think you're connected to the black community. I was like, get out of here. I live, I'm 57 years old, live like 48 of my years of the African-American community, bro. It's like, <laughs> but my mindset, like the cats from DC, cats that I went to Stanford with who were from Howard, came out to get their masters, was like not this other firebomb stuff. It was very def very definitely, you know, uh, who runs, who, whose house is this? Run's house, exactly, <laughs> you know, so. Yeah, I thought that they did a good job of laying out Luke's story and the way that they started with the first sort of uprising he was involved in just as a teenage DJ in the park. And the, when the, when the Miami police come to crack down and, you know, he, the way he tells the story, he's the agitator, you know, the local cops is, you know, ends out, mm -hmm. of, the, out of the hole, shut this down and, and looks like, you know, fuck you and have a good old fashioned, you know, Liberty city riot. And then he tells how his uncle had taught him to watch the news with a critical eye. And then they show some old mm -hmm. news clips from those days. And he's like, look, once again, they got black people acting like assholes, white people getting to play the good guys. And we know that's bullshit. And, you know, yeah. and that's when he got the, that was the impetus for him to start his own club that he owned. And that's where the ownership thing comes in. And, 
you know, and it lays the groundwork totally for his career as this political actor, uh, you know, who's defiant, even though seemingly his aesthetics are, you know, for lack of a better term, street or ghetto or filthy or vulgar, you know, just total crass comedy. Well, those garbage. are all, those, those, those are four, four or five different words in there, but yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you know, I, I just, I didn't want to, you know, but I kind of think what, 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 one of the things that I think that Shad has dropped the ball on and, and I think it's instructive, useful, and, and I wouldn't have found it distracting at all. I, I, I would have wanted him to talk about the, the, the real economics underpinning, mm. underpinning all of this stuff at this point, because, you know, Luke was not just a little huge, not became huge, yep. huge. You know, if you remember when Snoop left uh, Death Row, he he went out to no limit, right? I mean, it's like it's not just not just a little bit, like not just a few million here and there or gold record. I mean, massive. And if you could kind of, I think they're doing a real disservice not to give it a framework. Mm. You know, when I mean, we see Led Zeppelin with the plane. It says Led Zeppelin on the side. Right. Ah, this is this is this was huge. Yeah, I think they did mention that the first album went gold, the second album went platinum, and that you know Me So Horny blew up multi platinum. But yeah, they played. yeah, but that doesn't the, but no, the average person we don't know we don't know what the hell that means at all. Yeah, right? especially because Luke owned the whole ball of wax right. and and was even big enough to muscle in on distribu- distribution and stuff. So he uh, became a real player in the music industry in a real just with a niche product you know like like a very niche product and then the next quote is and they got to do this because this is obviously the big achilles heel of uh the two live crew but they uh get a woman of course lady tigra who who um was was a miami rapper in there and, and they were like you know what did you think of the lyrics? And, and she's like, well, you know, it pissed off your parents. You got to say all the dirty things you wouldn't say in real life. You got to dance dirty. Uh, mostly they were trying to express the culture of Miami. They weren't trying to make you think. They were trying to make you move. We saw this comedy. It was funny. It was hilarious. Does that get them off the hook for the misogyny? I mean, you saw all the white people, all the prosecutors and the, uh, you know, PMRC type people complaining about the misogyny and the brutalization of women where do we stand in 2020 Wokeville on on Two Live Crew's misogyny, Alexi? You know, the weird thing in terms of where do we stand in woke culture is whenever there's any kind of analysis on what the effect is in terms of misogyny, you know, given the racial element, that comes in and can dilute whatever impact occurs. I mean, it, it's if there was much, if you listen to music nowadays, hip hop music, you put on the radios. It's worse. It's it's so much worse, and so much. Some of these things are just so much more mainstream now than they were back in the day. That I think it's hard to have any kind of legitimate criticism, woke criticism of two live crew being a relic when you listen to the the average top song on urban radio nowadays. So I, you know, I, I just it's kind of. It's one of these things. So in other words, it's one of these things where Two Live Crew and NWA and the hip hop music where people are like, oh, my God, I can't believe they're saying that. 
that's now the standard. That's the norm nowadays in terms of the stuff that's being talked about. Like nowadays, it's like strippers, club, drugs, strippers, club. That's someone had suggested the reason why that's a big thing is that's how you get over the get around the whole payola issue, because, <laughs> you know, you can't you can't. It's illegal to to pay a radio programmer. Right. Or a program director. Uh, is it illegal to pay a DJ in a strip club but then when everyone's in there listening to it and eventually, you know, so I, I think it's given how nasty current hip hop is now and has been for years, I don't really see any kind of woke analysis or rebuke of Luke Campbell as much as a celebration that he opened the floodgates and enabled hip hop, filth, the filthiness of hip hop to flourish. I don't know. What, what, what's your take on that, Eugene? Do you think it's I'm far off or what? Well, uh, I mean, uh, yeah, not, uh, you, you, I don't think you addressed the point. <laughs> <laughs> if, if, this, if this were a moot court, I would say that's all fine, a good, nice, flowery language. But look, when H.L. Mencken died, he said, look, I'm going to give you my, my diaries. You can open them up 50 years after I die. So everybody much loved uh, H.L. Mencken. They loved the guy, loved the guy, loved the guy. So what happens 50 years later, they open up his diaries and there's stuff in the diaries. He's a, apparently a misogynist, he's a racist, he's an anti-Semite. And, and, and I remember at the time saying to somebody, I go, you realize that H.L. Mencken could have gone on national radio in, during his time in 1933 and said exactly what he said in his diaries, and, and a vast majority of America wouldn't have blinked its eye, mm. right? It, he was a person of its time. Do you throw out the baby in the bathwater with with H. L. Mencken? Uh, I kind of do. <laughs> I kind of do. I kind of have a hard time after the 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 Ray Charles thing with uh, Elvis Costello. Had a hard time getting beyond the second record. That happened between the first and the second record. Bought the second record, but I've been out ever since. It, it's emotional. It's not intellectual necessarily or analytical. So when I hear you know it, it, every single black community that I grew up in that I've lived with. Would you talk to your mother like that? No. Would you talk to your sister like that? No. Would you talk to your friend's sisters like that? That stuff could get you killed. So uh, initially, from a performative aspect, I understood it as theater in the same right. way that you know that the Godfather I knew didn't really represent the Italians that I knew. Right. right? It was just a, it was just a movie. But it's become so America's attitudes about women ha has become so crystallized into this weird thing. I remember the first time I noticed it was when I had the record store and I would see kids come in and it just, it wasn't like old kids nowadays. Uh, it was this weird, it was like, I missed the TV show and I'd watch these like 16 year old boys relate to these 16 year old girls. And I was like, where are they getting this from? It's like, I, is it from the movies, which I was still tuned into? Or was it, and finally I figured out it's from the music. That's what, and, and they haven't been able to figure out that this is fundamentally a type of theater as you wouldn't be able to if that was all you were exposed to. So, um, so I, you know, I never dug that aspect of it. There's one thing to spend all your time talking about fucking. I'm perfectly down with that, you know, but it's another thing with bitch this, bitch that, and whole yeah, well, with this. But the two live crew, but here's the thing, specifically the two live crew, I think it's always different because – I think when we get to part two and we talk about ghetto boys, like, you mm -hmm. know, even going back an episode and listen to NWA, like that stuff that if you listen to it nowadays, it is troubling and bothering. In other words, when I was watching it too well, live crew and I was thinking about okay, it, I was laughing and it was performative and it was comedy. And it's like, how can you not look at this gap tooth motherfucker 
and the goofy guy with that always has yep. his arm in his sling. And we used to always joke because he talked trash with stripper. Like, how can you look at these guys and not laugh and realize right. it's a fucking right. joke? Whereas but, but, other things, it's 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 not funny. It's right. disturbing. Well, and, and you and you said and you just said two things that I think are pretty noteworthy. There is a fundamental difference, and this is a good segue for Nate between NWA to kill a hooker and anything that the Ghetto Boys did. Anything that the Ghetto Boys did, they were those were into the out, undiscerning eye. You know, it seems the same thing. They weren't exactly the same thing. Mm-hmm. The, you know, the, the, the NWA was built on kind of street cred. It was report supposed to be reportage. So when they segued into to kill a hooker, people were like, what? What am I taking? A, what's the, my takeaway here? Mm-hmm. Whereas the Ghetto Boys with Bushwick Bill, it was always kind of uh, you know mind playing tricks on me, and you seeing monsters. It was always clearly understood as theater. So I'm thinking of uh, uh, you know I saw a hitchhiker who wanted to play, and then he stabbed her, and he you know it was. I mean, <laughs> it, was it, was, right. it was horror movie. It was horror. It was a horror. Completely, completely understood. Totally different from the Killer Hooker and NWA on the Evil Snagging records. So, oh. Yeah, so which I never listened two, to. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that I did. Me yeah. About that yeah. But two more, two big things to cover on Two Life Crew before we wrap, though, and that's their legal war. And and they only talk about the obscenity case in Two Life Crew, but Two Life Crew actually set the precedent in two major cases. One was this obscenity rap that they that they talk about where the sheriff of Broward County had a hard on for him and it was just, you know, banned the record in Broward County, arrested a record dealer, and Luke wasn't having it. He went to Broward County and and performed there knowing he was gonna get arrested. And they did and the case goes all the way uh to the top and they win uh, win a, a grand ruling on on obscenity. You know that basically you cannot call a record obscene just because of the verbal content of what they're saying or the lyrics of the song. The other thing that they didn't talk about, even though they played some of the songs, was parody, because right. they they got sued. I think it was the Roy Orbison estate yep, sued yep, for, for yep. Oh Pretty Woman, mm-hmm. and they won that one too, and yep. established that if you're doing parody you have the right to bite quite a bit of the thing you're parodying. And so, you know, it's sort of like the way Larry Which, which, expl- which explains Weird Al Yankovic. <laughs> 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 Who's outlasted all his critics at this point. I, I think you just have to... He still seeks permission, though. That's the thing. Apparently, he still asks. He asks, like, I want to do this. Can I? And Eminem told him no. He's like, okay, then I will do it. Yeah, you know, he knows how to play ball. But that's 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 neither here nor there. But the, the thing with, with Luke is it's it's a lot like Larry Flint. I mean, at least the way Larry Flint was seen in the nineties when they had the Woody Harrelson Courtney Love movie about him, you know, that's still he's, still he's a big First Amendment guy. Yeah, it's seen as this first First Amendment pioneer. And Luke Luther Campbell is absolutely somebody that all of future hip hop and all of uh, you know, American arts owes a great debt because he he spent the money. I mean, he went to court. He he stuck to his guns. A lot of record companies, you know, if he'd been on a major label, he would have folded. If he wasn't backing mm. himself as an independent label, um, I don't think I don't yeah. think they would have gone the way. I mean, look but at the you, way Time Warner folded but, with Body Count and Ice T, even though they tried to but, fight. But you're getting close to something there. Independent business mm. that was the smartest cheapest press that he ever got mm. didn't need a press agent for that baby yeah. you know that was that, as as an independent businessman and as far as i'm concerned that was a no-brainer <laughs> of course we gotta fight especially can you get the lawyers to do a pro bono because it's a, a classic landmark case 
No, no, no. You got to fight that. Easy, easy, easy. Pay. I bet you if you dig deep enough, you would even find. I mean, I know Larry was big on, on First Amendment stuff. You know, there are plenty of people who would have donated money for you to fight this, yep. right? Yeah. But nonetheless, something like, you know, Time Inc., Time, yep. Time, yep. Time Warner couldn't fight these cases, even though they wanted yep. to, even though people like Howie Klein at Warner Brothers Records and Sire wanted to fight for Ice-T. Ultimately, you know, t the Time Warner empire was so big, they're looking at, oh, shit, we got cops protesting at Six Flags. We can't have this, you know, and, and folded. Whereas Luther, you know, it was still a time in hip hop when you could be about as big as an artist got in hip hop at the point and still be on an independent label. Hmm. Alexi? One of, the one, of, one of the first people I met in California when I got here, Howie Klein. The, the legendary uh, record executive who brought us Alanis Morissette. Uh, and Sadly. You remind us <laughs> many of the, the mess he like left. To, let's have the benefit of your legal mind. For what? <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I'm Lutheran. It's, it's legal challenges. No, no, I, it, look, I think that in law school, when they talk about obscenity, like the line they're going to always keep in mind is, you know, I know it's obscene when I see it, right? So, you know, I think that in terms of this line of First Amendment, it's very vigorous uh, protections of it. When you're talking about when, what Eugene was talking about earlier uh, and – uh, individuals who are independents and what else would they do and also pro bono. That is true. I mean, the, the thing is, First Amendment law is one of those, one of the few areas of the law that it's, you're not as challenged to get pro bono legal representation or get someone who wants to make a name for themselves or has some kind of libertarian perspective that politically their uh, position may be adverse to yours, but fundamentally they're all about the First Amendment. So, um, you know, it, it's not really surprising the fact that they were in there and they had the kind of support that they that they did from attorneys who looked the way that their attorneys looked. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and the one, last thing, one last thing I want to cover is they, they, they hammer home the point that it was only when they crossed over to white audiences that this became a problem. And I do think that there is a difference. Like when you see them in their context in Miami, in Liberty City, in the black community, there's a real organic healthy sexuality being expressed in a way as a or, stripper you know, was shaking her ass it was very healthy whereas when i picture like the guys i knew in borker texas that were blasting <laughs> too true, like you know those of us what was hip was with run yeah. dmc and public enemy and then and then my you know dear slightly slow friend joe uh was blasting the two life crew in the parking lot and and there's an aspect to that that is not an embrace of healthy sexuality. And so to, it, it's when you get these cultural shifts into different cultures, especially a repressed puritanical culture, like <laughs> Southern Scots, Irish, white culture, when you get the hillbillies riled up and openly vocally horny, I mean, it really is like <laughs> time, you know, because it's the no hillbillies joke. are scary. Well, it's funny right? because the people that were the biggest two live, it's funny you say that because the biggest two live crew fans that I've, all you know that I've ever encountered were white people, like and hillbilly white people, as well as um, token black people at white fraternities. Yeah. <laughs> those are the those are the yeah, ones who are, who are rocking yeah, the uh, the. No offense to the true brothers that are rocking two live crew. I just never met one. Yeah. <laughs>
<laughs> yeah, and and in honor of Brother Marquis, uh, you know, <laughs> <laughs> he's like Beavis and Butthead, right? He's like, oh, that was cool, man. It was, yeah, man. Oh, everyone has a cousin totally like that. Yeah, man. I, yeah. I, I did it. It was so cool, man. I like that. Yeah, he was pissing people off and. <laughs> That was great. It was great. You know, so anyway, we'll come back and wrap up with the, the section on the Ghetto Boys, Texas Zone, finally. Oh, finally Fifth Ward. Get represented and short guys. So, and, I'm, <laughs> and somebody who I met. Bushwick. Which one? Bushwick, you knew Bushwick? Bushwick motherfucking Bill. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, yeah, I met, I met him at uh, South by Southwest. And I was geek, geek beyond belief. Wow. The, the light great Bushwick Bill. Yeah, uh, light great. Yeah. An exponent of, of rappers dear to my heart, people who cannot keep a beat, but still <laughs> he's a successful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we'll have that next time on Let It Hey, hey, hey it, it is is the is the the short guy from Kid Rock's crew, is he still alive or did he die oh, as well? Man. You know, I haven't been following. I, I, I... <laughs> I haven't been following Kid Rock in, in some time, much less his crew. But I think he was violating COVID uh, restrictions in one of his bars <laughs> in Nashville recently. It was the last I heard from Kid Rock, and I didn't see the little fellow. So, you know, can't help you on that one. Here's two live crew doing Throw the D. There's a brand new dance, and it's coming your way. It was started in Miami by the Get a DJ. Say some call it nasty, but that's not true. Just the only dance that you can do. Because you need a sexy body, make your partner come alive. If they can't do that, don't. So get yourself together and learn it quick. Just get on the floor and throw the D. Throw the D. And now a word from our sponsors. And here's the Ghetto Boys doing my mind's playing tricks on me live on Yo MTV Raps way back in 1989. Candlesticks in the dark, visions of bodies being burnt. Four walls closing in, getting bigger. I'm paranoid, sleeping with my finger on the trigger. My mother's always stressing, I ain't living right. But I ain't going out without a fight. See, every time my eyes close, I start sweating, and blood starts coming out my nose. There's somebody watching the act. But I don't know who it is, so I'm watching my back. I can see him when I'm deep in the covers. There you go. Yes, and as you can tell from the botched introduction, it's part of our Hip Hop Evolution series. We're continuing part two of the Southern Way Hip Hop Evolution Season 2, Episode 1. We talked about Two Live Crew in the first half of the show. Now we're back with Eugene S. Robinson and Alexi Old to discuss Texas' contribution to hip hop culture, the Ghetto Boys and the Underground Kings, AKA UGK. So uh, I think the first thing that come to bring out is that the Ghetto Boys were the first act to give Southern rappers legitimacy. I mean, two live crew sold records, but everybody saw them as essentially- Party band. Party fun. Yeah, party fun, clown, dirty joke. Uh, the music was throwback to the early 80s. It wasn't anything innovative, whereas the Ghetto Boys were, at the time, I perceived them at least as an extension of what NWA and the West Coast gangster rappers had been doing. It's the same kind of Marlon Marl-influenced uh, uh, sample-heavy mixed stuff, but really kicking. And then the rapping was very skillful, but the language was unbelievably dirty and raw. 
and the it wasn't reality rap it was horror core mm. it was clearly horror movie stuff i mean they were referencing chucky movies so you know it was pretty clear if you listen that this was a little bit oh, they're in my pocket but it was very scary at, at the time and then ugk came along a little later and this is one of the things where the series gets kind of weird and it's just the challenge of trying to do such a big history a history of a whole musical genre in 40 minute episodes because ugk i mean on the one hand they're a group that started in the late 80s got a major label deal in the early 90s but they were a slow burner i mean they weren't major popular until they did a big pimpin with jay-z in like 1999 and it wasn't until Pimp C gets out of prison in 2007 that they, I think, broke into the mainstream right before Pimp C died. So it's a little weird to be going from Two Live Crew to UGK in the course of one episode because you're basically going from 1987 to 2007 in one go. But be that as it may, let's get right into the key quotes from the show. Well, first off, let's ask both of our panelists. What were your thoughts on the Ghetto Boys when they first hit town, Eugene, or hit the scene? Well, I understood them a little bit different. I didn't understand them to be so much representative of the South, though it was pretty clear that they were from the Fifth Ward and you know, Houston. They make no mistake that they were that was the set that they were claiming. However, I understood them to be uh, part of um, or a continuation of what Def Jam had done, which is to take is to take essentially. Rock and roll instincts, and 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 go deep with them, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, if you if you saw Ozzy biting heads off of bats, which it was well reported that he thought it was a rubber bat. Yeah, had he known it was a real bat, he probably wouldn't have done it. You know, um, and he did ha- Alamo when he pissed on it. He just thought right, <laughs> right. And you and you had and you had early attempts at this. If you remember RZA. Was part of this kind of grave, grave diggers, diggers. grave diggers. So people were fooling around with this idea of, you know, much like you know, NWA introduced gangster rap. People started to think about, okay, well, as, as a modifier, what could I do? Uh, and uh, so you know, the, the Ghetto Boys with this, you know, horror hip hop and their presence on Def Jam, I understood them to be kind of a uniquely different Def different America. different animal. What's that? Yeah, Def America, Def sorry. Yeah, I mean, I think for, a, I, I think it was from a very casual um, perspective, you know, I saw found out about the Ghetto Boys, I'd heard about them, because I knew people who liked the Ghetto Boys, and then when Mind Playing Tricks Found Me blew up, you know, everybody was feeling that Thank song you. and the video. Uh, Scarface was somebody who lyrically, uh, over the years, people had respect for. Um, Bushwick Bill was seen more as a no- more as a novelty act, and Bushwick Willie D was, motherfucking Bill. Yeah, and uh, Willie D was just seen as just a guy, just like a country ass dude, you know. So really, it was Scarface that I think transcended. I mean, the Ghetto Boys did, but they're saying uh, of all the Ghetto Boys, it was Scarface that, in terms of lyrically, from a casual perspective, casual perspective, like uh, had people's attention. But again, outside of that album and Bushwick Bill, you know, being shot, you know, and and the horror. No, 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 no. Bushwick Bill shot himself. That was all altogether. If he had been shot, it would have been like, oh. I thought his girlfriend no, he, shot him. Didn't his girlfriend shoot no, him? No, I thought that he shot himself. 
No. His girlfriend shot. His girlfriend shot. Or he got shot in a domestic altercation with his girlfriend. So, but again, it's the whole novelty of it. It wasn't like a situation. So, in other words, outside of, I guess, the casual hip hop fan, because I was a hip hop fan, but I was a casual hip hop fan, right? So, as a casual hip hop fan, Ghetto Boys outside of Mind Playing Tricks on Me, We Can't Be Stopped, it, it just it, not really on the radar other than the strength of that. It's no disrespect to that. I'm just saying on a casual basis. And when you get to UGC, that's, that's even, it's even worse. I think it's, 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 I, I started to listen to the Ghetto Boys at the same time or very near to the time when I started to listen to Slayer um, because they were both having legal problems for a lot of the same reasons. So naturally, catnip for a guy like me, right? <laughs> and we'll and we'll get to that because I don't talk about the whole Rick Rubin Deaf American era to get a voice in that, and we'll get to that in the what they left out segment. But first, let's talk about um, some key quotes from the show, and and I really like the way they go into sort of the roots of the act, and they focus on Willie D. Like they give the big cartoon name thing to Willie D. as a solo act, and and it's a way, it's a narrative device so they can tell. How this scene originated, and it was a battle rap scene because there was no local record uh, industry before rap lot records springs up. There's nothing except battle rapping going on, and so Houston had kind of ahead of its time big battle rap scene. And so Willie D gets in there. The big thing about the battle rap scene is that's all we had at the time. We didn't have artists putting out records. The battles were the only way we could really participate, and that's what I like about the series is it gets into this need for people to participate in these scenes, not just be consumers, not just be listeners, to participate and to create. And that was the beauty of the hip-hop from the get-go, was it was a way for kids who had no musical instruments, who had no musical equipment, to make music. So When they slashed so, the funding for, uh, what did a lot of people say, when they slashed funding for uh, music programs in the schools, right? Yeah, absolutely. And if you look back at like Charles Mingus and all the way back to Count Basie, I mean, all these, this jazz comes out of the tradition of public music education in America. Pharrell and, Williams was part of a drum line, right? Yep, yep. But we'll, we'll get to him in a future episode. But and then the next quote I want to get to is, is from Shad, who points out that the brains behind it all was a car salesman named Little Jay, a.k.a. Jay Prince. As the founder of Rap-A-Lot Records, he wanted Houston's baddest rappers for the ghetto boys. It would take him three tries before he said would set the final and legendary trio. And that's the thing people forget. The first, there's two Rap-A-Lot Ghetto Boys records. The first one is G-H-E-T-T-O, and it's a whole different crew, except Bushwick Bill is kind of there in a Flavor Flav role. And I never had that one, but I had the second Rap-A-Lot record cassette, and uh, or we got it right before, some friends of mine had it, and it was getting some buzz right before Rick Rubin signed into Deaf American and, and basically re-recorded that album and remixed it and resequenced it. And at the time, I was Mr. Cool, and I thought the Rap-A-Lot version was better. But going back and listening to it, I think Ruben picks it up a little bit, sequenced the songs a lot better. But the main point was this entrepreneur, uh, James Prince, who, who put the whole thing together. I mean, it's very much a Svengali who's assembling the band. And like Willie D, the next quote from Willie D was, we were soldiers, and we got our marching orders. You know, and we're in the studio 18, 19 hours a day. And dudes just tell us what to do, and we're just executed. And people can look at that in a bad way, but to me, it's like a great American music tradition to have yep. Golly and the Mastermind 
you know, and, and I, I like Scarface's quotes about, you know, what James Prince was the founder, the mastermind, the brain, the business mind behind the Ghetto Boys. He saw some shit at 22 years old we couldn't even fathom. We couldn't even imagine. This is a fucking kid a couple of years out of high school with a vision like this. He mm. was light ahead of his time. And I'm assuming he's dead now because they didn't talk to him. Or he's dead or got screwed over. That's what I thought. I thought dead or screwed over. Yeah. Another guy got screwed over was DJ uh, Really Red, who, or Reddy Red, who's yeah, not yeah, mentioned that, at all. You yeah. know, and, and I still don't know. I know Rick Rubin was involved in, in the production on, on the one Def American album, but the the Rap-A-Lot album has some great cuts and great samples and mixes. So somebody was doing some slick production work. And I also think Mind Playing Tricks on Me is yep. sort of a precursor of the Dre style. I mean, it's it's got very limited sample. It's got the, the mellow groove instead of the, the in-your-face blare. And so it was... Well, also, also lyrically, it did something that that is is popped its head up every now and then, which was a a rare display of vulnerability on the part of all three cats. You know, these are guys who are not, you know, despite the trappings, not on top of the game in claiming that. You know, um, so I thought that that it, it ended up being fairly revolutionary in that regard, as well as, of course, the video where people got to see, you know, Bushwick Bill in his full glory. Um, Hey Eugene, so, we can just see the your your the left side of your head. Is it left or right? Left side. If you go, there we go. You're Van Gogh it. How's that? There we go. There we go. You gotta let us see the beautiful man. Yeah. <laughs> but also, 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 I don't think I don't think I don't I don't think that people. I, I, feeling bad, I, I would not never feel bad about having you know a martinet a taskmaster in the studio. You know, I mean, I. I if, that's what you got to do to get stuff done. And I had a, a producer, Joe Ciccarelli, make me sing the word eventuality 64 times until I got it right. Mm. And you wouldn't think there are a lot of ways to say that word, but it's got a lot of syllables in it. And if you want to put the emphasis on eventuality, I mean, you can see that uh, sometimes you need somebody who's standing there like, you know, do it again. It's not quite right. So and, Jay Prince is still alive, by the way. Ah, cool. He has some, so he got, so he he got some diss old. track five years ago against Birdman and Diddy. Hmm. So, yeah, it's interesting that they didn't talk to him at all. On, on or story. he wouldn't be talked to. Yeah, yeah, whether they picked him or not. And then the last, the last quote I want to get into in this segment was Willie D's. New Yorkers were very, very resistant to us, towards us. But it wasn't just because we were from the South. It had a lot to do with our content. We were like, fuck this, fuck that, bitch, ho, inward, fuck you, motherfucker, fuck that. We didn't get a, give a fuck. We played this spot in New York, and it was packed. The crowd just started booing, get the fuck off stage. I remember looking out the audience, and I saw dudes booing us so much, they were taking breaks. Like, they were booing <laughs> out the gifs. <laughs> and then, that was uh, rude. An Amber Alert. Uh, no, uh, no, it's a it's a silver alert. They're looking for you, Nate. <laughs> He's here. He's here. Or it's Jay Prince looking for your ass. He's like, oh, said I'm dead, motherfucker. <laughs> but also, what, what people don't what people understand about New York at the time. Do you remember at the time where uh, they had some like black consciousness event, and uh, they say, yeah, well, we're gonna have LL Cool J. We want LL Cool J to show up. And he says, yeah, great. You know, I think, you know, Luima had been raped with a plunger mm -hmm. by New York City cops in Crown Heights. So there was a lot of heavy stuff going on. LL Cool J gets on stage and goes, Tina's got a big old butt. And people started booing. You yep. know, they just were not into, you know, you had to be 
activated. If you were not activated, nobody wanted to hear it. So it could have been that it, it fell under the ages of, you know, they just didn't want to hear ghetto shit then, right? Yeah, I mean, you you had Q-Tip and, and Tribe Called Quest and the Jungle Brothers and De La Soul yep. and that whole scene that was that was pretty woke. Yeah. Uh, and, and the ghetto boys are just totally, totally on the different thing. But they got their revenge when they come back a year later and play Madison Square Garden because um, Mind Playing Tricks uh, blew up. And for me, I was hit to him because I was into Rick Rubin and, and Deaf American and all that stuff. So, and, and I'd already heard the rap a lot records. And so I was super excited about the Rick Rubin record. But then when that whole thing, when Geffen pulled their support for it, it, it all kind of blew up. So I kind of lost touch with them. And then when the next album came out and it was that mellower mix style, and I just could not handle Bushwick Bill showing his, his eyeball and on the cover, I just, we can't we can't be stopped. That yeah, was a great record, man. It, it was, was <laughs> consensus, but it just you know it was part of me checking out the hip hop around that time, and I I liked the aggressive sample heavy sound, mm. and I couldn't relate to the to what turned out to be the prescient sound of the future with mind playing tricks on me, but I just couldn't couldn't dig it. But the, the thing that's the I, thing. also like he went into sex a lot on the on the you know the other level is. Uh, <laughs> That's a fantastic yeah. cut. So, yeah, but I, I mean, mean, again, which was sort of rock and which was sort of very rock and roll. Again, this outre, you know, sexual content, right? Threesomes and so on. So, yeah, but why do you think they left out the whole Rick Rubin Ghetto Boys David Geffen fiasco? Because they they don't talk about that. The series never talks about Ice T's whole body count thing. You know, they they don't talk about the corporate backlash against hip hop in the early nineties at all. Maybe they were trying to uh, cue him up at a future date. They didn't want to offend him. I don't know. I, I just, you know, who remembers it and who cares, right? And they're Canadians. <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, look, I think there's something to be said about the fact that there is a difference between going through something, right? Living during the time, being part of the scene. And, you know, what's so fascinating is there are certain things that happen on a local level that pre-internet days word of mouth and uh, 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 magazines you know uh, and, and different kinds of news publications or, or music publications spread the word and and the word spreads right and being part of a culture during the time which was going on as opposed to just being so removed from it I mean that's one thing again with regard to the whole series is that it, it does there's certain elements in almost every episode that are lacking because it seems a little too removed from the scene when the scene was occurring, you know? So it'll be interesting to see like with the upcoming episodes, like when does it really sink in given the fact that Shad's like, I'm a rapper myself, you know, like w w when does he eventually understand it? I don't know. <laughs> You're such a hater. So, I, 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 think, I think the answer to that is never. <laughs> yeah, I think I think it, Eugene's been sneaking ahead. But uh, so, anything else we want to say about the Ghetto Boys? I, like, I think it's interesting they never had a follow up to my playing tricks on me. You're not at a level like the the next. I think the next, well, I don't know. Scarface's solo record yeah. right after that was pretty phenomenal, man. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, so but it wasn't. It didn't sell units the way. And then and then Bushwick ended up doing a lot of what I think were pretty noteworthy guest spots and a lot of other other catch records, including Dr. Dre. You know, 
And he was so, a guy who also would appear like in different inter- when they wanted to have like before the term woke when they wanted to have like an intellectual rapper or a rapper that thought outside of the mainstream. Bushwick Bill would make the interview circuit. Like I remember talking about concentration camps and ghettos being like concentration yep. camps and things of that nature. So uh, and Scarface though, like Eugene said, commercially I don't know how his solo stuff went, but he was a part of the circuit. And yep. uh, you know after the Ghetto Boys, but I would say that I I, I played it for my my daughter who's thirteen. Mind playing tricks on me to see. Uh, you know, one of these things, like whether it resonates with people or whatever, and it did. It was still like the music was haunting. Lyrically, it was on point. So it's always fascinating to me to see what kinds of things that I liked back in the day that still have currency, and that one did. Yeah, that's absolutely like just an epic, epic single. Um, so now we'll turn to UGK, the Underground Kings. And I – I mean the, the thing I like about this series that I really love about this series is that the first season kind of covers – chronological order it does a little bit of the regional hopping around but as this series progresses it gets really into regionalism and going to port arthur texas i mean that's just deep that is an obscure place i've been there i know you guys have been yeah, break uh, it down far, I, I didn't even the underground kings i was like the fuck are these guys is it from borger from borger to port arthur from my hometown to port arthur is about a 14-hour drive i think damn that's Texas for you. Yeah, I mean it's it's a different world. I mean, Stan Hansen, Warga, Texas. Yeah, the Texas. Is it is it is it well, east or west? Port Arthur is southeast, deep southeast. South. It's basically, he's south. like not east or west, southeast. Okay. <laughs> it's, basically, it's basically what? Louisiana. It's on the Gulf yeah, Coast, yeah, yeah, and yeah, it's, okay. it's it's an hour and a half east of Houston, but it's only I want to say 30, 45 minutes from Lake Charles, Louisiana, which right. is where you get Pimp C and right, Bundy talking. About. Right. The, the you know the meters and the Creole and the Cajun thing and that's what's cool about it is these guys brought in the whole New Orleans African American musical tradition you know and that's the heart of of American music is New Orleans and it's the first time New Orleans comes into hip hop through this really unlikely pair of guys from bumfuck nowhere I mean Port Arthur fifty thousand people tops you know no nobody coming from Port Arthur had made any kind of impact and 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 they were like a slow burn i think that i think the the thing that they get across really well is the musical genius of pimp c i mean they emphasize you know this this is a kid whose dad was a musician whose stepdad was a choir director who had instruments who played the trumpet and was also a homebrew you know studio guy like they've got dj dmd talking about who was you know a couple years older and a few years ahead how you know this kid introduces this geeky band kid holding his trumpet case and comes up and introduces himself as man i love what you're doing i'm just you know can i just watch and learn and he describes how he has this daisy chain you know of cassette decks as his multi-tracker and 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 you know pimp c sees my rigged up concoction and before i knew it he had a multi-tracker he had a keyboard he's at home chopping up samples and that's consistent with the way he was in the game. Like he's one of the first people putting live instruments on hip hop records and, you know, totally, totally years ahead of his contemporaries. And, and that's what was kind of weird. Like when I first saw that UGK was in this, I was like, this is way out of chronological order. And then, you know, I go back and I was like, oh, wow, they were, they were around in the early 90s. It's just they were pretty regional at the time. And I remember hearing their version of Use Me Up 
uh, I stupidly was like thinking they were Vanilla Ice clowns, like because they were biting the whole chorus. That was one of the first songs that was biting the whole chorus, and I knew that Bill Withers record. Whereas like I didn't know all the James Brown samples that NWA was doing, so I'm hearing yeah, yeah, yeah. stuff for the first time because you could not get James Brown records when I was a kid. Like it was all out of print, and you know when I hear these guys biting the whole chorus from Use Me Up. I just kind of blew them off and then, you know, but turns out that that was just the beginning and that, you know, their innovations, particularly bringing in the Creole and, and the Cajun stuff and, and the New Orleans and actually bringing a member of the readers into the studio to play with them. I think that's, that's the importance. And they do a good job of conveying that, 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 that you know, Pimp C was this homebrew musical genius with his own studio in his house that really laid out the template that became outcast and that became the whole little Wayne and the whole Southern hip hop explosion. Would you say that's the like, reason? So that, cause the, the, that's the question I had, like when I saw that it was underground Kings and again, it's one of these groups that had name recognition, but honest to God, I could not name an underground Kings song to, to save my life. Right. And well, so they never had, so again, as a casual, as a casual, like I, yeah. I, I felt that well, when it transitioned, then I was like, Huh? You know, so would you say that given your I, I don't know if it was different for you guys watching them, and this is not to undercut like, you know, their value as rappers, but I just do you think that when you the way in which a series has gone so far, and then you start off the episode with um the groups that you started off with and you end with, you know, with Underground Kings, like is it was it as much a misplaced for you guys, or did I just totally no. miss out on the, the value or their importance when they were hitting things? Well, I, I in 2001, I, I was editor-in-chief of EQ Magazine, I think around then, 2001, 2002, or may, maybe somewhere, maybe 2005, I don't remember. But anyway, uh, one of the guys who was a, an editor at Guitar Player of all places, he was a big hip hop head. He did this publication called GURP City. And he was like, I said, and typically like I meet younger guys, I would say, hey, well, I want you to make something so I can listen to what you listen to. Mm. And he made and he made a CD for me and he put on UGK. Mm. And uh, right away I knew UGK was cool and something to pay attention to. And then dude died, so I stopped paying attention to them. But it comes up on shuffle all the time. And all the time it comes up on shuffle. I'm like, who the hell is this? This is great. And I'll go back, and it's UGK. Mm. And then when they had did the interview with the guy, I could see completely why they did an interview with the guy because I thought he was a really trenchant, trenchant voice. I, I really enjoyed, I really enjoyed his interview segment and thought that it was necessary that he be in there. And it's not all bitches and hoes. And that this guy looked at what he did from the point of view of, you know, as a structuralist. And I thought that was that was cool. I was glad to hear him talk. I mean, I, I think the reason that they're in there, it's twofold. One is the southern thing and you know in texas when are you going to put them in I, I think that they have to be in the series somewhere because they are where outcast got the okay, whole model right, right. for southern mm -hmm. hip-hop it's just like the marley mall thing where all of us were going why are they talking about marley mall no, but marley mall like there's so many hits and i don't know you know what i mean that's the thing it's just well, the so hits, central to like you know uh, to to hip-hop for a certain era you know and yeah. I, I don't know if it's regionalism you know growing up on the East Coast, maybe that's maybe that's what it was. I don't know. Well, this is the thing, though, is that this is where the Southern hip hop musical template was set. Okay. The, you know, the the, the mellower grooves, the church emphasis. You know, 
having the live instruments in there. That's where the guys who produce the Outcast album. Right, got. right, right, right. Yeah, organized Tim noise. Played. Yeah, and, but the other thing that that I thought was weird, the like what they left out was their biggest single, which was Big Pimpin' with Jay Z. Like mm, they, they don't I heard that mention. one. Yeah, and that's that's where most people know UGK or got to hear hear them the first time, and they don't go into that backstory at all. Like Pimp C hated Timbaland's production on that and wouldn't even he only mm. did. They only have eight bars of him on the song because they could barely talk him into being on the song because he thought the production was so whack, which to me seems nuts because Timberland, one of my favorite producers. But if you listen to what Pimp C was doing, it makes perfect sense he wouldn't like what Timberland was into. It's it, the totally opposite things. And if you're making that deep, heavy Southern gumbo, you're not going to dig, you know, what Timberland is doing with the with the Indian samples and everything. So. I thought it was weird. Why did they leave Big Pimpin' out of this story? Uh, man, you die, and then they, all kinds of crazy things happen. But, I mean, you know, I don't know. It, it just, Does Jay-Z appear in the series at a certain point? Oh, yeah. He's, he's got to, yeah. So, oh, yeah. you know, was it, I don't know. Were they aware, again, going back to, like, were they aware of some kind of beef, and they, wanted to, they didn't want to offend Jay? Nah, there's there's no, I mean, you know, he, he liked UGK. He was happy to feature him get some of that shine on, on his shit too because that was his way that was when outcast was coming up big and he was wasn't that his third album or after his second album kind of stiff and he's trying to come back a little i think he was wanting to get a little bit of the southern hip-hop shine on himself huh. for that as well although he's disavowed big pimpin he says it's one of the few songs you know when he goes back he's embarrassed about the lyrics and everything. one of the few songs that, that i like <laughs> Yes, hey, Jay-Z. He, he, look, he looks up from counting to a billion, and he goes, you know what? You just made me lose count. I got <laughs> What was your question? And, and that's the other thing, though. They also leave out the whole free Pimp C thing, which that was when I started hearing a lot about Pimp C, was, you know, Bun B was doing all these guest spots, and he was always pushing the free Pimp C. And they don't talk about that at all, and they, they glide right over the whole prison sentence. Mm. And to me, what happened to Pimp C, I mean, you... I didn't realize he was this band dork and that he's this little music kid, you know? And, and when I hear about him basically getting railroaded into prison, cause like, you know, my wife's a prosecutor and assault with a deadly weapon is a pretty minor charge. It sounds heavy, but people get slapped on the wrist for that shit all the time. I mean, you throw a stapler in somebody's head that could be assault with a deadly weapon. And, and he managed to parlay that into probation violations and boom, into pretty lengthy prison sentence that was just bullshit you know yeah, yeah. a lot like what they did to old dirty bastard it just makes me sick it's like watching mick jagger crying about brian jones going to jail it's like he's not a criminal he's a musician you know and, and seeing a kid like pam get just fucking railroaded just makes me really sad but yeah, i'm sure your wife would agree take no deals <laughs> <laughs> don't talk to yes. the cops don't talk to the cops and take no deals if yeah innocent ride that straight to the end yeah, and also try not to get on the probation system. Yeah, yeah, I know they get you on that one. Ah, yeah, they, I they, knew that they, when they arrested me. Eighteen <laughs> months. All right, eighteen months. Be clean for eighteen months. Yeah, that's this is pre-COVID, so no fucking lockdown or quarantines. <laughs> Nowadays, like okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, I, I like that they had UGK in there because it's a group I had paid much attention to, and it caused me to get in there and to go through their discography. And and I'd only listened to the early stuff and then the, the very end stuff, and so I had missed the albums that were like the definitive albums. And so I enjoyed going back. 
to all that. I anyway, liked it too. I'm not. I'm not shitting on him for that. It was just you know I did not. Yeah, know. you were. Yeah, you were. Not well, shit on Jay Z. It was a weird choice. I mean, just chronologically, like when I first saw, how are they going from two live crew in one episode to to use your yeah, like a twenty year golf. But and and if you look at the you know as we talk about future episodes, the chronology is going to be all over. Be back next time to discuss it with my unruly friends Alexi Ol and Eugene S. <laughs> Nate, Alexi, and Eugene will be back next week with a discussion of Season 2, Episode 2 of Hip Hop Evolution, Out the Trunk, The Bay, which takes us to Northern California to talk about Too Short, MC Hammer, Digital Underground, and a young Tupac Shakur. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com.